Church, go ahead and have a seat. It's good to be with you today. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And um, if you're new with us, typically what we do here at Providence North is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And today we actually find ourselves almost at the beginning of Ruth. We started Ruth last week. We only got through five verses, but we're going to get through a few more this week. But uh, personally, I was sad when we finished up the book of Ephesians because I loved the book of Ephesians. I thought it was perfect for where we are at in the life and body of our church. I loved how Paul had to challenge us um, and what he had to say for us about how we view ourselves and what God has done for us and how we are now to respond as the church because of that. But after spending some time in the book of Ruth, both personally and we do it as a staff as well, um, I'm really excited about what God has to share with us in this book as well. You see, the book of Ruth is believed to be one of the most complete and perfect short stories ever written. As Sean shared last week, it has everything you need for a compelling and engaging story. It has desperation and relief. It has heartbreak and love. It has tragedy and redemption. And all of it is centered around relationships, real life, messy and hard relationships. And specifically, we'll see these relationships between God and his people and also relationships between God's people and each other. And I believe this is important for us, both on an individual level and as a church, because the truth is, is we're not meant to live life alone. We're not meant to sojourn through this life alone. We were designed and meant to live in relationship with one another. But the problem is, is we're pretty bad at it. We're bad at relationships. And I know I've said this before, but today we live in one of the most connected times in the history of mankind. With all the tools that we have access to, we are theoretically more connected than we have ever been before. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're living in one of the most disconnected times in the history of mankind when it comes to how and when we interact with one, each other, with one another. You see, we have the ability to know exactly what's going on in people's lives today. If I wanted to know what you had for breakfast today, or maybe what workout you did yesterday, or what vacation you went on this year, maybe what your social and political views are, I can do all of that pretty easily without having to put the hard work into the relationship. All I need is a thumb and learn how to swipe up and down. I can figure all that stuff out, which leads us to believe that we're actually connected to one another because we know what's happening in each other's lives. But unfortunately, this couldn't be further from the truth. We think we are connected and that people actually know us because we have followers on Instagram. We have friends on Facebook. And I believe deep down that we want those friends. We want those followers. We want the likes. We want the comments. I believe we actually like having people in our vicinity. But the truth is, is that they aren't in our lives. We want people to see the clean cut and righteous posts of our morning coffee and our Bible open, right? Hashtag quiet time. Hashtag blessed. We love those posts. But then on the flip side, we don't want people to know that we're actually struggling in life, that we're struggling in our marriage, that we're struggling in our parenting, struggling in our friendships, even struggling in our relationship with God. We don't want people to know those things because it might expose us. And if we stop for a moment and we're brutally honest with ourselves, I would say that sometimes we might not even want to know what others are struggling with. Because again, life is messy. Life is hard, and sin is ugly. In most cases, I believe that people like the idea of relationships, but don't actually like relationships. And the Bible has a whole lot to say about relationships. 
Whether it's in the context of marriage or family or friendships, the Bible has a ton to say about it all, including what we're going to see in the book of Ruth today. We're going to see the messiness and ugliness of real life when sinful people live with one another. We're going to see how decisions, both good and bad, affect those around us. And in some cases, those bad decisions are extremely damaging and hurtful. We're going to see calamity and loss and tragedy come down on God's people, but we're also going to see redemption. The entire book of Ruth is this incredibly written and wonderful short story of redemption, much like the Bible and God's redemption of his creation. The entire Bible is about how God's creation runs from him, goes their own way, so God, through the most unlikely of ways, redeems his people back to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. And the book of Ruth actually plays a major part in that grand narrative. And we're going to learn more about that over the coming weeks. Now, in case you missed last week, here's what happened. The book of Ruth starts off with this incredible hook in the storyline. It's almost this, the way it was written was to produce kind of shock and awe from you. Because it says that in the land of Israel, the promised land, the land of milk and honey, there's a great famine that is taking place. And this famine is taking place during one of the most dark times in the history of Israel. And actually, the book right before Ruth summarizes this 400 years of darkness in one verse. At the very end of the book of Judges, right before Ruth, it says this, Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see, God's people are living in the kingdom, but denying the king. The very people that God delivered from the slavery of Egypt, the very people that he brought to the promised land and helped them conquer all the nations living in that land, the very people that he settled in the land of milk and honey, those people are denying him and they're doing what is right in their own eyes. They're following their feelings and emotions and making decisions based on those desires rather than God's desires. And after God does that for all of his people, after he does all those things, God's people decide to live in the kingdom without a king. And things go downhill very fast and darkness prevails. So then God tries to get their attention. And so he allows this incredible famine to take place in Israel, including in the town of Bethlehem. And this is where we're introduced to this family. And this family consists of a husband and wife, Elimelech and Naomi, and then their two sons. And what we saw last week is that Elimelech decides, hey, you know what? I'm tired of this place. I'm tired of this famine. I think it's best we head over to Moab because I hear that the harvest is plentiful over there. That's where we're going to find our material needs and our prosperity. And Elimelech says, enough is enough. We're going to figure it out on our own. Now, the problem with this is Moab is a pretty bad place with some really bad dudes. And when I say bad, I mean really bad. Moab is full of pagan worshipers who perform child sacrifices, just as a, as a tip of the iceberg of how dark they are during their worship. But what's even more crazy about this story is that God actually tells his people to never associate with the Moabites, and we see why in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 and 4, it says this, No Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Now, here's why God says that. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. So when they left Egypt, the Moabites said, no, 
We're not going to give you bread. We're not going to give you water. Most nations did bring those things to the Israelites because they were afraid of the Israelites' God. But the Moabites said no. And not only did they say no, they said, we're going to hire someone to curse you. And we see that right here. They hired against you Balaam to curse you. God says to the 10th generation, never allow a Moabite to enter the assembly of God. That's a pretty strong commandment, right? It's one that the Israelites are meant to obey. Good morning, Bella. That's my daughter. But Elimelech, so he's here. He knows that he's meant to obey this commandment, but Elimelech, already living in a period of God's discipline due to their disobedience, decides, you know what? I'm going to outrun God's discipline, and I'm going to go to the very place he told me not to go. He leaves the promised land. He leaves community. He leaves church. He leaves a place to worship. He leaves fellowship with other believers. Elimelech is ready to give up on God for a bit of grain. In essence, he's trading spiritual security in the promised land, and he takes his wife and two sons to Moab for momentary physical security. And I say momentary for a reason, because guess what happens? Elimelech dies. He dies and he leaves his wife and two sons to fend for themselves in a foreign land. But it continues. His sons, they end up marrying Moabite wives. Again, the very people they were told not to associate with, they decided to marry. And guess what happens? They die as well. Pretty dark. So now here's what we have. A single mom in a foreign country with two daughters and no way to survive or support themselves. Why? She's too old to have children. And during ancient times, if you can't bear children, then you weren't allowed to get married. She can't work because again, she's a woman. And during those times, you're not allowed to get a job if you're a woman. So here we have Naomi. She's completely lost her identity. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's lost every means of survival. She's literally at rock bottom. Now, I want you to feel the gravity of that situation, okay? I want you to put yourself in Naomi's shoes for a second. This is a dark time for her. This is a dire situation. For her, it's hard to look past the waves of this shipwreck. But I want you to notice something. Why did all of this come about? Why are we in this place in the story to begin with? This is all happening because of bad decisions made by men. Bad decisions made by men not seeking the Lord, but rather doing as they wished in their own eyes. Everything that is happening in the midst of these relationships is because of the terrible decisions made by men in the story. So men in this room today, you have to realize that every decision you make has an impact on those around you. Every single one of them. Oftentimes, I pray that we often and all the time, I pray that we all the time seek the Lord in all the decisions that we make, seeking him and knowing what would glorify him in those decisions. But I know personally that there's times where when we seek after what's right in our own eyes seems easier than what the Lord has for us, isn't it? It seems easier. And quite frankly, the momentary returns, the momentary benefits, 
of significance and pride and comfort and pleasure and even control, those returns are exactly that. They're just momentary. And they leave you chasing and wanting more. And it's often in those times that the biggest mistakes are made in our lives. And as the quote goes, we spend 20 years building our reputations and building up our lives, and we ruin them in five minutes. If you think about it, you might do things differently, end quote. Now, I'm not challenging the men in this room to just think about it differently. Because if you do, you're still just doing what's right in your own eyes. What I'm doing is I'm challenging the men in this room to go completely against the grain of what the world has to say is right. I'm challenging you to seek the Lord, read the Bible, pray, spend time with others going through these decisions that you're making in your life. Be vulnerable. Allow people in. Ask him what would glorify him in the process. Man, we only have one life to live on this earth, so I pray that we would make it count for something more than just momentary pleasure. Now, of course, I'd be remiss if I said this just applies to men. Because what we saw in the book of Judges is it says, everyone, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So this does apply to every single person in this room, men, women, and children. Every single relationship is affected negatively when we do what is right in our own eyes. Because it's all relative, There's no moral base. There's no level playing field. What's right to you is right to you. What's right to me is right to me. And that's why we see and experience so many problems in our relationships. Because relationships are full of problems, all of them. And if you never experience a problem in your relationship, then my guess is, is you're not in a real relationship and you're just faking it. Because the problems that I'm talking about are often self-induced. And in some cases, they are caused by others. And the truth is, the people around us, those that we're in relationship with, they're sinners, just like you and me. We're all deep down rotten sinners, and we all make decisions that affect those around us. And at some point in time, we're going to be wronged, and we'll be affected by our sin or the sin of others. But here's the hope. I want you to hear this. Here's the hope. God is always always, always at work in our relationships and in our lives. We may not see it at the time, and we often might not be able to see past the pain and the anguish caused by sin, but we must trust in what Paul reminds us in Romans. Romans 8.28 says this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God is at work in all of our relationships. And he's even at work in the relationships that are taking place here in the book of Ruth. So we're going to pick back up now in Ruth, all right? So Ruth, chapter 1, verse 6. Now again, be reminded, Naomi and her two daughters, Ruth and Orpah, are in a very dire and dark situation, all right? They're widowed, they're in a foreign land, or Naomi's in a foreign land, and they have no way to support themselves, And here we go. Ruth 1, verse 6. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she heard the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, here's what I find interesting about this text. 
I want you to underline or make a notation in your journals where it says his people. Because this is where we see a major turn in direction in the story here. There's a lot of tragedy and calamity and all of a sudden we're starting to see the redemption come forward. See, not only is Naomi's actions turning here, but her faith is turning as well. She's turning back to the Lord because upon learning that there was once again food in the place that she used to live, the land of milk and honey, the land that she left, she recognizes that it's the Lord that's providing. She says the Lord is providing. And who's he providing for? His people. And so Naomi recognizes this, but she also realizes that she's not with his people. She's not with her people. And more importantly, she's not with God. You see, not only did Naomi's husband take her away from God's people, but he took her away from God. And she's beginning to recognize that. It actually reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. Y'all remember that story? This son who desired momentary gains of wealth and pleasure. So he goes to his father and asks for his inheritance before his father dies. And he runs off to a foreign land and he wastes it away. He goes from penthouse to pigsty. He goes from feast to famine. And then all of a sudden he wakes up one day and he realizes that he's lost. And he wants to go back home. And so he runs back home and guess what? His father is waiting there with open arms. And so here we have Naomi in a similar situation. She's left the land of milk and honey for momentary provision. She's lost everything. And she recognizes that she's among strangers. She's not with God's people and she's without God. And so she returns. But right after we see her decide to come home, she shares this beautiful prayer. I don't know if you've, if you've read through this book, if you've noticed this, this amazing prayer that she shares with her two daughters-in-law. I want you to see this beginning in verse 7. Verse 7 says this. So she set out, again, Naomi, from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to the return to the land of Judah. But, no, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, this is her prayer, Go return each of you to her mother's house. Ready? May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, as you have dealt with my two sons who have died and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up their voices, and they wept. What we're seeing here, again, is this major turning point in Naomi's disposition towards the Lord. She recognized her need for the Lord. She recognizes his provision, sovereignty over all situations. And this prayer, here's a cool thing. This prayer is just one of six prayers in the entire book of Ruth. But the really cool part is, and something for us to think about when it comes to our relationships with others, every single prayer that is said, every single prayer that is whispered, every prayer that is given is for the benefit of others. Every single one of them. And here's the cool part cooler part. God answers every single one of those prayers. God answers every single prayer that is whispered in this book. And so for us today in this room, the question becomes for us, how often are we praying on behalf of others that we're in relationship with? When do you pray for others? How often do you pray for others? Even when you're in a tough time in a relationship with someone else, are you praying on behalf of them? You see, if you're anything like me, my natural inclination when it comes to dealing with problems or dealing with difficult situations um, 
I try to find the path of least resistance, and I just try and fix it, because that's what I do. I'm a fixer. I just want to fix the situation, and I want to move on. And I've found myself oftentimes giving this, like, super quick and super righteous answer, like, just stop it. Just stop what you're doing. Don't be an idiot. We can move forward. Anyone else fall into that trap? Rather than praying for them, you just, here's how you fix it. Just stop. The issue here is that there's nothing about those types of responses that's glorifying to God. And typically, that type of response, all it does is it puts this wall up between us and that other person we're in relationship with, doesn't it? All relational equity at this point is lost. And now there's an even bigger gap or divide between us. But when we pray for others, and I'm not talking about the prayer like, okay, God, I see the problem here. Here's how you're going to fix it. Now go and do, right? I'm talking about actually humbling ourselves and praying for others like Naomi does. I'm talking about praying for spiritual, emotional, and physical welfare of others. Praying that the Lord would provide favor in difficult situations. Praying that the Lord would provide love and rest and security in a time of need. Praising God for all that he's done for them and through them. Those kind of prayers. And the cool part about it is that God wants to answer our prayers. Just like we did this morning for Allison and Eric. We were praying on behalf and for the benefit of Allison and Eric. God wants to answer those prayers. So how often are you praying for others that you're in relationship with? God answered this prayer for me recently. As a parent, one of my deepest desires um, and my deepest prayers is that my children would come to know the grace and mercy and kindness of the Lord. And uh, that they would trust and believe in the gospel. If there's anything that I spend my time praying, and I pray for my kids for a lot. I pray when they're at school. I pray for their safety. I pray for their health. I pray for a ton of things for my children. But if there's one thing that I want my kids to know, it is I want them to know and be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? And he answered that prayer for me recently. My two oldest boys have now come to know who the Lord is. Praise God. And last week I got to baptize TJ in celebration of that. It was one of my greatest joys, but I also recognized that it was God that did it. And so I praise him for all that he's done in my boys' lives. I pray on behalf and for the benefit of others. And I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians. Paul is writing to this incredible church. Again, the Ephesian church, the, they've done so much for the kingdom. They've done so much for the Lord. It says that all of, Asia, all of Asia came to know the Lord because of the work through the church of Ephesus. But here is what Paul prays for when it comes to this church. Ephesians 1, 16 and 17. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God and Lord of Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul, in the deepest parts of his heart, his greatest desire is that God would give his people the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, that they would know God. And that's what we should be praying for when it comes to others that we're in relationship with. It's what I should be praying for when it comes to my wife, when it comes to my children and others, praying that our earthly relationships would be just a glimpse of our heavenly relationships. But... 
When it comes to tough times, when we're in a difficult situation in our relationships, it's hard to pray like that, isn't it? Much like what we're seeing with Naomi, times of calamity and shipwreck, times when relationships are messy and hard, praying to God for those things is often easier said than done because we doubt, don't we? We doubt. When we see people walking in sin, we doubt what God could do. When we see people hurting, we doubt that God would heal them. When we are experiencing loss or pain or sickness, we doubt that God would fix it. And oftentimes, it's hard to see over the waves of that shipwreck. All that we see in front of us is the, ne- is the next wave of grief, and it's coming in fast. And we doubt that God could change anything about that situation that we're in, and that he would actually work it out for our good. And we see Naomi model this for us in these upcoming verses. Naomi, she's, again, weeping with her daughters. And she tells Ruth and Orpah to return. She basically says, look, there's no hope for you if you come with me. Look at verse 10. And they said to her, again, after she prays this prayer, she said that her daughters say, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi says this, turn back. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. Even if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, turn back, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi is pleading with her daughters. There's absolutely no hope, she says. There's nothing more I can do for you. I can't even provide husbands for you. Because again, during these, t- during these times, it was customary that if a husband died, the brother would then take on the marriage and care for that woman. And Naomi's saying, I can't even bear sons for you t- to do that. She's reminding her daughters that there's no hope. And even more so, would they actually wait for those boys, if she could, to grow up to remarry them or to marry them? You see, what we see here is Naomi is actually getting caught up in the drama of it all. You ever feel that sometimes? In the situation, in those dire and dark situations, you kind of get caught up in the drama of it all. She's beginning to overemphasize and sensationalize how bad it is. At the same time, she's underemphasizing and ignoring how good God is, and she's becoming bitter. Think about it. Even though she and her family were living in disobedience in God's commandment, when it came to the Moabites, God still provided for her. He gave her food and nourishment. He provided a home. He provided a nation to go back to. He provided daughters for her sons. And from what we read in these verses, these daughters were uh, incredible women to her sons. She says that, how incredible they were. And yet, even in all of that, Naomi can't see past the immediate. She can't see past the immediate. She can't see what's happening past what's happening directly in front of her in the then and now. Much like the Israelites did when God freed them from slavery. You remember this? God gets them out of town in Egypt, and they're running, and they're, they're being chased after the Egyptians are chasing after them, and they get to the Red Sea. They run smack dab into the middle of the Red Sea. They don't see a boat. They see no way of crossing 
And so they sit there and they lament and they cry out to God and they say, God, was there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? They see no hope. And so with extreme bitterness, Naomi says, just go, return. There's no hope for you. Now, because we know the ending of this story, I believe it's easy for us to point, out that, to point this out. It's easy for us to say, hey, Naomi, what's up with this no hope stuff? God provides, right? Paul will teach us later on that he, does all, he works out all things for our good and his glory. So just have faith, Naomi. What's the deal? But can we really judge her? Can we really judge her? Would we not respond the same way? Like I said earlier, I believe it's easier said than done. It's easy for us to say, yeah, I have faith that God will work every situation out in my life for my good and for his glory. But the truth of the matter is, is oftentimes we doubt. Because again, relationships are full of problems. God is working in those problems. But what we fail to recognize, what we fail to see oftentimes, is that God is actually working through those problems. We fail to see how God might be using our problems as a part of his grand and perfect narrative, just like Naomi. Because when we're in the middle of a relational shipwreck, when the boat is going down, the water's coming above our head, we're not thinking about God's cosmic plan, are we? We're not thinking about it. We're just thinking about survival. How do we get to the next day, to the next hour, to the next minute? And generally speaking, during those times, we're fixated on one certain idea or route of escape. And if that doesn't happen, then we tend to go to the mindset, well, God just doesn't care about this situation, does he? But I ask you the question, what if God wants to care for you in a different way? What if God's ways... And plans and designs are different than yours. What if his plan is much further out than you can see right in the immediate and now? Better yet, better yet, what if his ways of redeeming his people back to himself after loss and tragedy come from the most unlikely of ways? Because here's the deal. Naomi, her problem isn't that there aren't any, her problem is that there aren't any men to care for her daughters. She thinks that the only possible solution is for her to have more sons to marry her daughters to take care of her. That's the only way this can work. In her eyes, that's all that can happen. That's the only way solution escape that her brain can come up with. And so for her, she sees there's no way that God can deal with this. There's no way. So there's no hope. Well, in the coming chapters, we're going to see God's plan more clearly. We're going to see how he's going to bring redemption back to this story. But he does so in the most unlikely of ways. He does so through a distant relative, someone that Naomi couldn't see coming from a mile away. God is going to redeem these relationships for their good and for his glory. And we're going to see a couple of new marriages coming forward. We're going to see the marriage between Ruth and Boaz. And we're going to see the marriage of Naomi and God come back. But before we get there, I want, to see something, I want you to see something important. I want you to see how the daughters respond to Naomi's pleading and hopelessness. Verse 14 says this. 
Again, Naomi says, turn back, go. The situation is dark. There's no hope for you. So they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and Ruth clung to her. Naomi and her girls, they both see the difficulty in the situation. It's difficult for them to see how things could possibly get better. How could they even get better as daughters of a widowed Israelite? And they themselves are widowed Moabite women. How could it be any better even if they went to the land of Israel? And so they weep. But then we see two contrasting responses. First, Orpah says, you're right. There's nothing for me here. You know what? I'm going to go back to my people and to my gods. And she kisses Naomi on the cheek and she leaves. But Ruth's response could not be more different. Ruth clings to her. Naomi is telling her, look, all I can promise for you if you come with me is poverty and difficulty. Life is going to be hard. Relationships are going to be hard. But Ruth says, you know what? You just prayed this incredible prayer for us. Yes, life is going to be tough. There will be difficulties, but I believe God will answer that prayer. And she clings to Naomi. And the shocking part in this response is that Ruth, a Moabite woman, who is despised by God and the Israelites, a woman that grew up among pagan worshipers, a woman that is widowed and has no way to provide for herself, is showing more faith and loyalty and love and trust in God than Naomi and Israelite has throughout this entire story. That's the shock and awe in this whole thing right here. Ruth sees that life and relationships are messy and hard, but trusts that God has a plan and a purpose. And we need to get that today. We need to understand that same thing today. That life and relationships are messy and hard, but trust that God has a plan and a purpose in them. You see, Facebook friends, they're easy. Instagram followers, they're easy. But real life relationships, they're messy and they're hard. And if you don't get that, then here's what's going to happen. You're going to end up alone eventually, and you're just going to spend time posting things of insignificance. You're not going to dive into the mess of relationships because it's not easy. Real-life relationships will just be too hard and too difficult for you. You'll never join a church. You'll never join a community group. You'll never join a discipleship group. You'll never get real, and you'll keep everyone at surface level because you think friendships and relationships should be easy. Romantic comedies, I love them. I'll watch Matthew McConaughey all day long. But they tell us that marriage and dating should be easy. But the truth is marriage is really, really hard. And it's messy. And if you don't get that, then typically what's going to happen is you're going to ignore the difficulties. You're going to smile and move on like nothing ever happened. You won't deal with the sin in your life. You won't deal with the sin in your spouse's life because, again, you're both sinners. You'll never deal with confrontation. You'll just sweep it under the rug and you'll pretend like everything is great until one day it blows up in you. Or you just might turn your marriage into a business relationship. You'll spreadsheet out everything. You'll budget money. You'll budget time. You'll budget kids. And you'll never do much other than that. And you'll never address the real struggles in your relationship. Because again, marriage is supposed to be easy. 
Well, the book of Ruth is going to show us that real-life marriage, real-life friendship, real-life relationships, they're messy, and they're really, really hard. But God. But God is in the business of redeeming messy relationships, isn't he? Starting in the messy relationship that we have with him. Starting right there. So for you today, maybe you're living like it's the time of judges right now. Perhaps you or those around you are living and doing what seems right in your own eyes. And now because of that, what we know is that way of life leads to darkness and it leads to despair and calamity. And you and others that you're in relationship, you're feeling the effects of those decisions. Some of you are broken or you're being broken. Some of you are tired. Some of you are just feeling the dire and darkness of those situations and you've lost hope like Naomi. Or perhaps you're like the prodigal son. You know the father. You know what he has for you, but you run off to a far and distant land hoping for momentary pleasure. And you find yourself among strangers and you're wondering, is this all that life has for you? Well, hear this. Your father is waiting for you to come home. He's waiting for you to come home. Our father, he's waiting for you. He's waiting to forgive you. He's waiting to redeem you. And he's never, ever, ever lost hope in you. You can trust that. Because he wants to heal you through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Naomi, she recognized that it's time to come home. Perhaps it's time for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and what it has to say for us. And God, I'm just, I'm being honest with you this morning. I struggle in relationships. I struggle in relationships with friends. I struggle in my relationship with my wife, with my children, with you. And God, I, I, I want to confess that to you and repent of that. God, I know that there's relationships in this church that are struggling. I know there's relationships in my vicinity that are struggling and they're hurting and they're broken and God, would you just give them a heart that would run to you, that would go to you in this? That we would stop doing what is right in our own eyes and that we would seek you in all moments and all decisions. God, we need you. I just pray that we would humbly admit that. I pray that we would humbly admit that and so that this world would see something much different than just tragedy and calamity and loss, that they would see your redemption because we, we run back to you. That you would do a work in us that we can't do of ourselves and that people would see that and say, wow, that is different. I want that. I need that. But not because of us, God, but because of you. And so God, would you give us would you give us that? Let us be ambassadors of your love and show the world what you can do 
even in the midst of tragedy. We love you, Father. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.